arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Now it's time to see if Chaser really remembers their names. All ready for Chaser. Come on, Chaser. Come to Neil. Okay. Okay. Come on down. Quick. Chaser, find Inky. Well, she got one right. Find Seal. Whoa. <laughs> and that one, too. Okay. Ready, Chaser? Now, you might be wondering what's going on behind the couch. Like, is John handing her the toys? Find Crawdad. Let's check our hidden camera. <laughs> Find Sugar. I asked Chaser to find nine toys, and she got every single one right. And remember, I picked the toys randomly from this huge pile. Neither John nor Chaser saw which ones I picked. Come back, come on back. multiple come trials back, with back, John back. and others, come back, come Chaser back. consistently aces her test. There's a thousand toys here. That doesn't, like, spook you. It makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> These dogs have super memories. On your mark, hit set, go! Over. Chaser and other border collies like her have shown they can remember hundreds of words and what they represent. Cable, cable, reverse, in, out, in. What's more, they can learn these new words very quickly. Over. Cable, Chase, cable, cable, cable. Good girl, good girl. So, how does this ability compare with other species? Well, besides us, chimps and bonobos are the animal kingdom's top linguists capable of learning sign language, but very slowly. There are tests where dogs perform much, much better than apes. Jones speaks with Professor Nussbaum's daughter, Bernice, and is impressed with Rex catching frisbees in the park. Bernice and Jones discuss the murder and the missing Steve Corbett, her husband. Before I mention the next character, you may close your eyes briefly. Sid Smoltz. Jones meets him and gets annoyed immediately. Smoltz just can't seem to keep his mouth shut and is all over the case and everybody concerned. Jones later that evening will visit Club Max and talk to Mick Dumas, who is playing at Club Max on Wednesday nights. He hasn't seen Coco in a while and enjoys talking to him. And let us not forget the Bisbane boys who are working on Jones's plumbing. Why was there shooting going on most nights at the Outback Club in the conservation area under the notch? All of that and more in episode three, which begins now. A funeral march for the maestro. Funeral march for the maestro. Chapter 10. Rex leaped into the warm, late afternoon air and caught the orange frisbee. Bernice clapped her hands and the dog transported the bright frisbee across the common. She retrieved the frisbee and faced Jones. Her jeans slimmed her figure. 
My father loved playing frisbee with Rex. Jones squatted down and Rex wagged his tail. He patted the dog's soft fur. Good boy, good boy. What have you found, Mr. Jones? Jones bit his lower lip and stood. McDumas, he got fired for something your father said to Nigel Kent. She tightened her left eye and twisted her lips. Something my father said? About not adhering to standards at the college. Not to sound snobby, but McDumas is limited in his musical abilities. My father was probably accurate. Mick is not fully capable of teaching at the college. My father was not confabulating if he alluded to Mick Dumas not following standards. Jones rubbed the dog's back. But losing your position at Hamilton isn't exactly grounds for murder. I know I asked you this before, but did Lenore Picada hold any grudges against your father? Bernice gazed ahead toward the first parish's white steeple at the far end of the common. Not that I'm aware of, Mr. Jones. No, she's just a family friend. I'm on my way to the station right now. We're trying to find out exactly what Lark Larson knew. Jones stood. The dog sat and looked up with his big brown eyes. His young torso tensed as he waited for the next frisbee throw. Bernice handed the frisbee to Jones and he spun it through the air. Rex shot down the grass and gracefully sailed upward and snatched the spinning orange disc. Jones smiled. He's good. I know that Lark Larson is your friend. Lark definitely shot the gun and inside the conservatory. That's not good. But I know Lark, Bernice. I don't think he killed your father. I think he fired out the window. I'm going to find the truth. And if there's anything you or your mother needs, thank you. Good boy, Rex. Well, I have to go to the police station. I don't trust my husband, Mr. Jones. What do you mean? Steve is unpredictable. I just don't know what he's going to do. Let me know what you uncover. Well, I will. Steve Corbett's whereabouts bothered Jones as he crossed the road to the sidewalk. The dog barked behind him and Bernice threw the frisbee again as Jones paralleled the common en route to the police station on School Street. He needed more information from Lark. Lark's stunt with the chest pains annoyed Jones, and he still did not discount the former coach, having killed Noosebaum. Other questions remained. Later, Jones would drive over the Devonshire Hills to Club Max and question Mick Dumas. It was important to know whether Mick and Corbett knew each other, or if either of them were friends with Lenore Picotta. Both Mick Dumas and Corbett in the library continued to trouble Jones. Jones held his fingertips against the station door's tight screen. Is LG on his way over? Wendell turned at the counter. Yeah, he's on his way. And by the way, Rick said Courtney Jefferson was looking for you. He pointed to his left and mouthed the words, Sid Smoltz, Lark's lawyer. Oh, turkey. Sid Smoltz was not a tall man, but Jones figured he would tip any truck scale past 300 pounds. He was supposedly from North Carolina, and his drawl dominated the conversation. His thick, dyed brown hair was out of sync with his wrinkled, pudgy face. He wore a powder blue dry cleaner press suit, tight at the shoulders and short at the waist and ankles. Jones finally opened the screen door and entered the station. Behind the counter, Ned shook his bald head. Wendell sidestepped as Strickland's office door opened. So, you're the law in this town. 
What is this, a John Ford movie? Whispered Jones. I'm George Strickland. What is this about Lark pleading guilty? Sid sounded as if he were gasping for breath, but Jones assumed he was laughing. Well, you, you have a problem with that? We all have a problem with that, said Jones. What are you, the mayor? We don't have a mayor. No volunteers in this hick town, huh? I'm Matthias Jones, and Lark Larson is a friend of mine. Well, I'm touched, Mr. Jones. Now, why don't you be a good old boy and run along? Jones pointed his finger as he approached. Who the hell do you think you are coming into town like this? Lark didn't shoot Noosebaum. And how long have you been a lawyer, boy? Jones grit his teeth. Apparently, it doesn't take a hell of a lot to be a lawyer, you... All right, all right, said Strickland. I think what my friend here is saying... Oh, yeah, one big happy town. All best friends, are you? Are you sure you're on the up and up there, Sheriff? Chief. Strickland pointed towards Sid's bulging vest. Listen, Smoltz. Think you know the law. Do you know who you're dealing with? Well, that's the whole point, said Jones. I don't think you know what you're doing. Well, I object. I concur with Matthias, said LG as he moved through the screen door. What? Asked Sid as he twisted his double chin around toward the door. He doesn't know what he's doing. Having Lark plead guilty, what in God's name is wrong with you, Smoltz? You know what the penalty for slander is, mister? Asked Sid. I do know what the penalty is for fraud, pretending to be an attorney. That, sir, is an insult to my profession. You're an insult to your profession, said Jones. Just get him off the case, LG. Well, it's not that easy, Matthias. Then call Lark. Is he still at the hospital? Asked Jones. Sorry, I have a retainer and a contract, boys. Then he laughed. Ha <laughs> ha, and my client's whereabouts are... Well, I'd like to see that contract, said LG. Confidential. Strickland closed his eyes and exhaled. Smokes, beat it. Get out of here. I came in here on a mission of goodwill and peace. You haven't heard the last from Sidney V.D. Smoltz. V.D.? asked Jones, smiling. Sid picked up a tiny briefcase that looked more like a child's lunchbox, and he swayed his large frame toward the door. Vincent Domingo, I'll see you all in court. What's uh, your defense? asked LG. Sid walked toward the door. What defense? Jones watched him leave and then turned to LG and Strickland. Well, there goes a legend. Well, let's contact Lark and send this guy packing, said LG. Where did Lark find him anyways? Wendell raised his hand as if he were in class. I know, I know. Lark went to school with him at Kokomo U. What a school. Right. I think maybe a background check on Mr. Smoltz is in order, said LG. He's going to tell Lark to plead guilty. Well, that's just plain stupid, said Jones. Very unorthodox. And he probably told Lark to fake the chest pains, said Jones. Lark didn't start having a pain until after he made the call to North Carolina. The report my secretary got from the hospital indicated Lark was doing just fine. Jones stood by the screen door and stroked his chin. I have to get home and see what damage the plumbers have done to my house. LG turned. Yeah, well, just don't use twice as nice. Now everybody tells me.
Look, LG, let me know how you make out with Lark. I don't want to see him railroaded because of Smolt. I'm going to call Herbert Lane right now. We'll get this thing straightened out. Herbert is being funny about this whole thing. I can't put my finger on it. I need to get bailed out, Matthias. Mary has one of those dumb romances lined up tonight. I'd love to get out of it. Well, thanks, George, but I'm on my way to Club Max. The amazing Mr. Mick. Jones opened the screen door halfway. Yeah, let's hear his song and dance. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 11. At ten past eight, Jones steered his jeep over the street gradient and into the well-lit Club Max parking lot. During the climb over the Devonshire Hills, thoughts of his ripped-up walls and piled-up copper pipes sent his accelerator foot to the floor. The flashing red and blue lights appeared on the Prince William side of the mountains. He pulled over and said nothing as he was written up by a Prince William cop. By the time he got to Club Max, he was disgusted by the day's events and needed a drink. The parking lot was not brimming with cars and trucks as when the younger crowd was around on the weekends. As he crossed the lot, the pink neon light flashed and the piano's melody danced outside every time the doors opened. He walked briskly across the asphalt, opened the door and smiled at the girl behind the counter. Past the bar, Mick Dumas in a dark tuxedo with a ruffled black-edged apricot shirt and a dark tie moved his fingers down the ivory keys with amazing dexterity producing a sound that had people at the tables and booths tapping their feet. You looking for action, Jonesy? Jones turned to his right, Coco Stefani, thin blue shirt open, revealing a gold chain and medallion strutted across the lobby's parquet floor. I've been seeing much of you lately. Somebody must be in trouble. Murder. Yeah, I like murders, he said, raising his dark brows and opening his eyes as if he were telling a horror story. Murders give uh, people something to live for. Well put. Come over to my table, Jonesy. I'll buy you a beer. Thanks. Gold chains rattled on Coco's wrists and his leather pants squeaked as he moved along the bar. He gave a few guys the high fives and hugged one woman with a red, low-cut halter top as he moved ahead of Jones. So how you been there, Jonesy? Well, our baseball team went to the New England Finals last year. No shit. You're kidding. You know everything. That's how you lured me in from Indiana, watching my high school boys go undefeated. You're just lucky I was watching Channel Z. I still don't understand how we made it to the gambling channel. Yours is not to reason why, Jonesy. Going to the finals should get you a raise in pay. I'm not counting on it. You should come work for me, said Coco as they passed Mick, banging the keys and the drummer kicked in. You and I work good together, tracking down the bastards who got your old man. You know how much I like coaching and Hamilton. Yeah, and I like my arrangement with Hamilton Fletcher. Why does he let you fund the athletic program at the college? I told you when I first met you, Jones, you don't ask the wrong questions. Mick glanced and smiled at Jones over his shoulder, his gray hair flipping as he played. Coco motioned for Jones to sit at the corner booth near the back room. Actually, I expected you. It's in the papers. That softy Lawson shot the conductor of the Prince William Symphony. He pleaded guilty in court. You know, I wouldn't peg him as a killer. Guy's a tub of jelly. Well, he was upset and newsbomb owed him money, said Jones, looking up at the waitress in the short dress. Owed him money? Ah, that could do it. Beer? No, I want a drink. Your choice. I've had a rough afternoon. 
Get my friend a hobby wall banger. Jones opened his eyes. Wait, wait. Just a gin and tonic. It was bad this afternoon, but not that bad. Put it on the house, sweetheart, said Coco, winking at her. Then he looked back at Jones as Mick spoke into the mic and dedicated a Gershwin medley to a woman at the bar. Mickey don't pack him in, but uh, I have to fill up Wednesday nights. He get a different bunch during the week. So, so why are you so tense, Jonesy? Oh, it's a long story. Hey, uh, Bebe gets off at 11. She lives in Marshberry, and I got apartments up there. No, 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 that's not it. That's always it, Jonesy. No, I got stopped. You what? Speeding, said Jones. Coco grinned. You want me to take care of it? No, no, it was my fault. So what? Talk to me later. You don't want to be paying a stupid fine like that. I'm rehabbing Crescent Street. Father Gallagher told me you have plumbers working at your house. Jones smiled as B.B. brought him the gin and tonic. She placed a red swizzle stick in the drink and leaned over provocatively to Jones. Jones stared for a second and then turned back to Coco. What do you think there, Jonesy? I think I could get into trouble if I hung around here too long. You sound like Gallagher. I forget you and Father Gallagher are friends. Can these Bizbane guys work on a whole house? Asked Coco as Mick started a nifty solo on the piano, but his voice was flat. Don't do it. They need a kick in the ass? You want me to send somebody over to talk to them? No, no. I wish they and everyone else would stop trying to solve the murder. They claim they heard shots a few times when they were dirt biking near the Notch quarries. Even idiots get lucky. That fat runt bothering you? Who? The campus cop I threw out of here. Driscoll. The little bastard comes in here again and I'll break his chubby little legs. Jones chuckled and took a sip of the drink. I don't think he'll be coming back to the club. You know, that guy really pissed me off. You and me both, said Jones. Mick Dumas stood with the other three members of the band to a meager applause. He looked over to Jones and bebopped toward the table. Coco stood and gave Mick the thumbs up. I like the old stuff. Hey, coach, what brings you over to Club Max? Asked Mick, brushing his hair off his forehead. He grabbed a toothpick from the holder on the table and placed it in his mouth. <laughs> Not the same as a cigarette, but it works. Your invitation brought me over here, Mick, said Jones. You and Coco know each other? We're old buddies. You want a drink there, Mick? Uh, kind of loosen up the pipes? Nah, nah, nah. Jonesy, you talk to Mick. I have some business to take care of up front. I'll catch you later. Thanks for the drink, Coco. Coco nodded and veered toward the bar. He placed his hands on two patrons' shoulders and chatted with the bartender. Mick sat down. So, what do you got in uh, Arnold's murder? Well, what I've got is a lot of loose ends. Oh, I'm sorry I won't be around to find out what happens. You can write me or email me and tell me what happens. Why are you so interested? asked Jones. Well, I worked with the guy. Phoebe looked down at Jones. Oh, nothing for me. Too bad, she said with a smile as she turned. Jones watched her long legs and then looked into Mick's gray eyes. You weren't fired, were you, Mick? Oh, now, who's spreading that kind of nonsense, Joe? Jeez, no, that's incredible. Why, you don't believe that, do you? Jones held the gin and tonic, but did not drink it. I know Arnold Nussbaum's comments got you fired. Mick rubbed his hand over his lips and glanced back toward his piano. Then you, you've been talking with Nigel Kent. I didn't kill Arnold. I didn't kill him. Why would I put myself in jeopardy just to knock him off? Well, you were at the library. Right, right, on the fifth floor. I heard the shots. Then you have witnesses. 
Oh, not at the exact time, but I do have witnesses. I was on the fifth, coach. So what's the big deal? Well, I have to explore all aspects of this. Locke has a very poor defense. You think he did it, don't you? Asked Mick. Jones moved the swizzle stick around his drink. Well, he hasn't come up with a credible defense. Anybody can kill if they're mad enough. Mick checked the stage and then pointed at Jones. Arnold Nussbaum suffered from a large ego, my man. He liked to step on toes. I didn't like him, and he didn't like me. But as God is my judge, I didn't shoot the man. Jones nodded. Well, somebody did, Mick. Jones sat within a group of 15 people at Coco's table, lined with brown beer bottles. Coco gestured with his hands as he spoke. The gold rings on his fingers sparkled in the track lighting as Mick Dumas and the quartet punched out a long New Orleans jazz rendition. So, the little runt comes in when I told him to stay out. My guy Bruno comes over to the bar and lifts up sewer breath right out of his seat. His feet are moving in the air like he's trying to run. Bruno carries little Mr. Driscoll outside and deposits him in the parking lot. He hasn't been back in here, has he? asked Jones. No, the little rodent hasn't showed his face in here. Well, he's always calling George Strickland and overlapping his campus responsibilities with the police. Jones looked down at his half-finished gin and tonic. But when he peered over the divider toward the bar, he saw Father Gallagher, dressed in a lightweight jersey and slack, stuck into the front lobby. Coco looked up. I keep telling Father not to come in here. Excuse me? Doesn't look good, said Coco. Jones nodded, skirted the divider, and darted to the lobby. Gallagher scanned down the bar to Mick on stage. Why don't you just put on some sunglasses and a Panama hat, Jim? Oh, Matthias, good. I would have picked you up at the rectory earlier. Coco says you shouldn't be in here. Across the room, Coco motioned for Gallagher to get out. Well, I'm not here to have a good time, he said seriously. Well, that's what they all say, said Jones, but his smile dropped. What's the matter? Can we sit down? Yeah, sure. Jones escorted him to the empty table in the half-lit area to the right. This must be important. It is, and believe me, I don't like to be talking out of school. If this wasn't a murder investigation, I'm reluctant to... What is it, Jim? I'm reluctant. I'm really reluctant to... Jim, what is it? Gallagher dragged a chair out and sat across from Jones at a rounded wood table in the darkened area to the side. I made a few phone calls since we talked last night. Relating to the murder? Relating to the maestro. Gallagher tapped his fingers on the wood as he checked the area. Coco's right. I shouldn't be seen in here. If word gets out, I'd be run out of town on a rail. What did you find out? The incident at the hotel where Nussbaum and Lenore Picotta were in the lobby in the wee hours of the morning. Did you confirm their affair? Not exactly, he said as Coco started down front. Oh, no, I'm going to hear it from Coco now. Coco creased his brow and stared at Gallagher for several moments before he spoke. Father, what the heck? I told you before, what are you doing in here? Well, I came to see Matthias. Well, you shouldn't be in here. Oh, I know that. You want a sarsaparilla or something? Get me a martini, straight up. Whoa. You want anything else, Jonesy? I'm okay. Coco winked and back toward the bar. She wasn't seeing Nussbaum. The maestro came over to the hotel because Lenore was with Steve Corbett. Steve Corbett? asked Jones, and he laughed. Come on. Lenore Picotta is refined and socially prominent. Corbett is a maintenance guy at the college. 
she and Corbett had an on-again, off-again affair. And again, I hate to be talking out of... Are you sure? Jones leaned forward and made a sour face. Come on, Jim. The maestro put an end to it. Bernice nor her mother knew anything about it. Oh, I just don't put Steve Corbett together with her at all. Coco carried a tall glass from the bar. Gallagher shrugged his shoulders. You can't explain human nature. They hit it off for whatever reason. Animal magnetism? I don't know. And Nussbaum and company, minus the elusive Mr. Corbett, were gone for three weeks. And she had that whole house to herself. This sounds like a setup. What sounds like a setup, Jonesy? asked Coco. Gallagher looked at the bubbly glass. What the devil is that? It's ginger ale. Uh, we're, uh, we're low on booze. What? Father, have the ginger ale, okay? Gallagher smiled. Whatever. Coco stepped back. I'll be out back if you need me. Thanks, Coco. Gallagher slid the glass closer. I don't want the police or the district attorney's office interviewing my parishioners or anyone else from the Enterprise. And most of all, I don't want Mayor Picotta involved. Not just because he's a benefactor to the parish, but Picotta is a very powerful man. Well, he is. This thing letting her have the house, why would Nussbaum leave her back here with her history of Corbett? My feelings exactly. Jones positioned his elbows on the table and rested his chin on his folded hands. Too convenient. You think they plotted Nussbaum's murder? asked Gallagher, sipping the ginger ale. I don't know. Gallagher jiggled the ice cubes and then stirred the red swizzle stick against the glass. Where is Corbett? I don't know that either, Father. Jones spotted Coco at the rear table. If anyone has the connections to find Corbett in this town, it's Coco. He briefly held Jones's wrist. Again, I have to stress that what I found out was told to me confidentially by a parishioner. I don't want myself or the parishioner involved. Jones smiled. Yeah, well, Coco's middle name is Confidentiality. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 12. Automatic shutoffs? I didn't order automatic shutoffs, said Jones. He scrubbed his soapy hands out of the kitchen faucet, and then the water stopped flowing. See? This is what I'm talking about. You put your hands under the water, you get them all soaped up, and then the thing shuts off. Never look a gift horse in the mouth, said Mookie. What gift? I didn't want to shut off on my sink or in the toilet. Hey, we had them kicking around and we wanted to make up for any inconvenience. Inconvenience? That toilet flushing in the middle of the night scared me half to death, Mookie. I'm kooky. Kooky, Mookie, just fix it. He rummaged through the stack of papers on the counter. I put my cell phone right here when I got back from the camp this morning. Oh, we had a slight problem, but we're getting you a new one. What? Mookie needed to use your phone. I do have the regular phone in the kitchen, said Jones, glancing out the living room window. The long black car with huge tail fins had circled the common all afternoon and had passed the practice field a dozen times during baseball camp. I said I have a wall phone. Now where is that? Temporarily disconnected. Oh, come on. We need to put in those new pipes around the phone line. Okay, so where's my cell phone? Well, Mookie dropped it out of his pocket. You broke my phone? Asked Jones, grabbing his Jeep keys. 
Well, not exactly. Where's the phone? Drying out. Like I said, it was in Mookie's pocket and it fell into the downstairs toilet. Jones closed his eyes. Never mind. I'll get another one. Mookie's on his way back from Gizmo City right now. You know that discount electronics place in Prince William? I'll buy it myself. Don't bother. We'll settle later, he said as the kitchen phone's muffled ring sounded. He scanned the room. Where's that phone? You got me. I didn't even know that Mookie taped it up. Taped it? Asked Jones as he pulled the yellow wall phone from under a toolbox. Hello? Where have you been, Matthias? I've been buzzing your phone. Cell phone is out of order. You should have spent more money instead of one of those Gizmo City cheapos. What can I do for you, Ernie? I'm on my way out. How so? He turned when he heard a pop, and Mookie ignited a brass-tipped torch connected by a flimsy hose to the green-painted metal tank on Jones's kitchen floor. The flaring blue flame sounded like a rocket engine's sharp burn. Well, I said Dewey's Lumber should pay for the camp, but we ain't springing for that beach bash on Friday. We'll talk about it later. Just order the food. I figured that was coming. That jackass lawyer of his is going to get him sent to prison. Well, I heard the lawyer was top-notch, said Ernie. Who told you that? Well, Bucky uh, knows his paralegal on campus. She said... Ernie, I have to leave. Hey, don't get pushy. Bye, Ernie. Jones attempted to place the phone on the counter, but the spiraled cord was caught under the tools and pipes. Hey, coach, said Kooky. He swung the brilliant flame away from the wall pipes, and Jones jumped back. You had a call from Courtney Jefferson. Will you watch that flame, Kooky? He's been charging us too much money for the stock at that dump hardware store of his. When his father ran that store, we got service and no lip. I think his mother is the one raising the prices. What did he want? What about this job? When are you going to finish it? You have my word. Mookie and I are going to work around the clock. We'll take out the automatics. Around the clock. I'll believe that when I see it, he said, hurtling the toolbox. The sooner you guys wrap this up, the better. Hey, we got a big rehab job coming up in Prince William. Yeah, right. He opened the front door. The long car was now parked near LG's office across the common. Jones trotted down the walk, pushed open his picket gate, and hopped into his Jeep. He started the engine and quickly shifted. Once again, the engine sparted, and he shouted out Arnie's name within a mix of expletives. The black car pulled away from the curb and drove south toward First Parish Church. Jones slowed, but as he continued toward School Street, the engine idled precariously and finally cut out near the station. The jeep rolled into the station lot. He thought about raising the hood, but instead headed for the station. Wendell held a coffee mug near the screen door. Matthias, George is on the phone with LG. What did he say? Locke's got himself into big trouble. What do you mean? Asked Jones, opening the door. That big mouth Smoltz has been over here off and on all morning. He filed a guilty plea in court. Why, did Locke do it? Well, George is beginning to wonder. Strickland sat on his desk as he spoke on the phone and waved Jones inside. Locke is... No, he just walked in. Locke is being arraigned for Nussbaum's murder. Is that true? Asked Jones. Strickland nodded and yelled into the phone. I understand that, LG, but 
Well, somebody needs to talk some sense into him. Smoltz is an annoyance. I'll ask him. He covered the receiver. Will you talk to Lark? Sure, I'll talk to him. Where is he? Smoltz threatened the insurance companies with a lawsuit. And something else about the hospital not treating him properly for that pileup on the interstate. I'm not exactly sure why medically he's still there. Jones motioned for the phone. Here's Matthias. LG, just get Smoltz out of town. It's not really that simple because Lark was empathetic about keeping Smoltz on as his attorney, said LG. He sounded as if he had just propped up one of his Cuban cigars in his mouth. Why plead guilty if you don't have to? Stupid. Sounds dumb, like something Lark would do. I just want to ask Lark a few more questions about what he saw at the time he arrived until the time he fishtailed out of there. What if he did it, LG? Well, he may have. Jones closed his eyes and did not want to admit that Lark was angry enough to kill Nussbaum. This isn't good. Smoltz will let him prattle on about everything but the murder, which is fine if you're guilty. We're talking about the law here. He risked getting Lark into real trouble. Listen, can you make an attempt to question Lark in the meantime? I'll try some other maneuvers and call you later on your cell phone. Well, you can't. It's not like you not to play ball. Well, that's not it. My cell phone, it would it doesn't work. Then can I check in with George? I'm still waiting to see if Smoltz can actually practice law in New Hampshire. Sounds like he needs practice. I'll talk to you later, LG. Goodbye. Jones handed the phone back to Strickland. Strickland folded his hands and pressed his index fingers at Jones. What about Corbett? Can't find him, George. I found out some information, though. Corbett and Lenore Picotta have gone hot and heavy in the past. I know that. How do you know that? asked Jones, placing his hands on the edge of the desk. Gallagher, he said he wanted me to know before you told me. Don't let it get out, Matthias. The parishioner spoke in confidence. Strickland stood and his gun belt scraped the desk. I'm headed out to the mayor's mansion in Prince William. We'll get a statement from Lenore. Why don't you talk to Lark? We'll meet in Prince William maybe at supper time. I just don't put those two together. Given up a long time ago and trying to figure out some people. I'll call you on your cell phone. Are you trying to get on my nerves, George? No. If I was trying to get on your nerves, I'd tell you how kooky Bisbane described to window dropping your phone in the tank. He picked up his hat and rounded the desk. Wendell. Wendell. Yo! Called Wendell from the outside screen door. We're going to Prince William. Trouble, George? He asked, peering through the screen. Getting Picotta involved could really mean trouble, he said, turning to Jones. Let's meet at Gallagher's parking lot at 5.30. You want to borrow my cell phone, Matthias? Have a nice trip, George. Strickland put on his hat and tipped it as he left the office. Rick smiled behind the counter. Something funny, Rick? Yeah, everyone gets burned by the Bisbanes once. More than that, it's your own fault. Funeral March for the Maestro, Chapter 13 Strickland's cruiser disappeared around the notch's rock ledges as Jones's misfiring jeep approached the slope. While he did not think Lark would change his strategy, he thought Lark might at least answer some questions. Jones also wanted to speak with Lenore Picotta and hear how she explained her tumultuous affair with the husband of the maestro's daughter. Picotta himself must have known about the affair and probably would shield his wife from anything politically vulnerable. 
Jones shifted, but the jeep lacked the power to speed up the passing lane, and he glanced back in the mirror to the college buildings nestled in the hills just off Main Street in Prince William. One side road scenario repeating in his head involved Corbett and Lenore conspiring to kill Nussbaum. That meant getting one of them inside to fire the gun before Lark arrived in a tizzy. He frantically tried to convince himself that somebody other than Lark fired that gun. He even suspected Mick. Mick was in the library, but he also had a motive. At the crest, the power in Jones's Jeep drained like the remaining pulses from a dying battery. He pulled across the highway and coasted onto the gravel shoulder, overlooking the quarries. The tapering hills surrendered to the flatter land and the suburban Prince William sprawl to the blue sea. He pushed open the door. High-level winds blew sand grain against his car as he rounded the bumper and looked back toward Hamilton. A Dewar's lumber truck was visible near the railroad tracks in town. Ani Dewar's. He opened the hood and secured it on the side rod, but realized he knew nothing about fixing cars. Again, he thought about Arnie pulling and poking at the distributor wires earlier in the week. He kicked the tire as the buzzing dirt bikers raced over the sand pit gullies beyond the quarries. Maybe somebody could call Pudgy Wilson to fix his car. As he started down the shoulder to the quarry trail, Jones heard another car speeding up from Hamilton. Bucky Driscoll's little brown security car strained in the outside lane as Jones backtracked up the rocks. He reached the shoulder as Bucky neared the top, and he wildly waved both arms. Bucky looked directly at him, pointed with his index finger, and then beeped the high-pitched horn. Bucky! The dented car raced by and descended around the bend. He wandered back to the jeep and leaned against the radiator. Unbelievable. He took a deep breath and marched back toward the quarry ledge. This time he was sure he spotted Ani Dua's blue pickup cranking up the highway at incredible speed. Jones rushed over the gravel to the opposite lane. Arnie beeped his horn constantly and called out as he passed. Hey, Matthias! Arnie, my car is broken! Again, the diminishing truck horn sounded and faded as Arnie followed Bucky's course along the shadowy rocks. Jones crushed his teeth together. After staring at the vacant highway, he shook his head and returned to the shoulder and stepped down the quarry trail. The dark quarry waters were shadowed along the opposite ledge and the mountain bikers echoed along the quarry rim. Through the tree barrier between the quarries and the sand pit, a white vehicle was parked along a stone wall following the incline's contour like sections of a long gray caterpillar. He winced as he thought of Arnie and Bucky passing him on the highway. Near the trees, the bright green lettering on the Bisbane truck was clearer. He checked his watch and continued down the stone wall. At the wall, the barren sand hills appeared like ripples on the ocean and stretched to the trees several miles ahead. Two bikes crested on one of the sand hill mounds and swerved down the other side. Jones scaled the stones and stepped through the trees. He headed down the grassy edge to the sand cliff and in the sunlight he signaled with his arms. The bikes traced the undulating sand and in unison, both helmeted riders cut through the sand toward Jones. He glanced at the twice-as-nice lettering on the truck. Like swimmers executing identical moves in a choreographed program, the Bisbane brothers slid both bikes within ten feet of Jones. They flipped their tinted sun visors. Decided to go biking, Matthias? asked the twin on the right. Well, my jeep broke down. Just like your pipes, you should practice preventive maintenance, said the other twin, sweat rolling down his unshaven cheek. 
I understand that. Right now, I just need to use your cell phone to call somebody out here. No can do. Battery's shot. Well, put it on the charger, said Jones. Charger is shot. Hey, Matthias, I got you a new phone. One of those transparent ones where you see all the wiring and circuits inside. Gizmo City was running them on sale. Good. Where is it? Charging. I thought you said the charger was broken, asked Jones. Truck charger's broken. New phone is charging at my house. Great. Can you guys get me back to town? After we run the course, you need to see where they're shooting. Shooting? Jones gazed up at his jeep several hundred yards atop the quarry ledge. Then he turned back to the Bisbanes. How often do you hear shooting up here? At night. You guys ride up here at night? Only when we have the moon, said Kuki. Well, that sounds just wonderful. I'm telling you, somebody was practicing up here with a gun, said Mookie. Where did the shots come from? asked Jones. Down the woods is a bunch of abandoned buildings from the old Outback Club, said Mookie. You can see all the bullet holes in the walls. Yeah, the wall is all chewed up, said Kookie. You want to see? Jones had a far-out side-road theory. Wait, you guys have been up here before. Are these holes new? asked Jones. Yeah, we were up here last month, said Mookie. We run the bikes right through some of the other buildings. The walls aren't as bad, but they're not all shot up. How far? A couple miles. You want to see it? Yeah, I'd like to see it. Hop on, said Cookie. He unclipped the spare helmet and threw it to Jones. It had a musty smell when he slid it over his head and the tinted visor was scratched. Jones straddled the seat and placed his sneakers on the side rest. Cookie pulled out slowly and Jones's stomach dropped with the slope. They followed Mookie to a lower flat trail between the mounds. The forest started at least a half a mile across the sand. Jones now questioned his own side road theory. He was reaching for answers. It was only a remote chance the killer had refined his shooting skills in the dead of night up here at the quarries. Without the Bisbanes on their moonlight sojourns, no one would have heard the shots deep in the forest, and a killer rehearsing a murder would leave no trace. With great trepidation, Jones gripped the bike seat along the bumpy trail leading into the woods. Shadows deepened as the trail dipped through the trees. Ten minutes later, they emerged into a wispy field set like a jigsaw puzzle within the forest. The ruins of two concrete buildings with punched-out windows stood in the high grass. Cookie skidded in the dirt near the opening to the first building. Jones took a deep breath and he again straddled the seat as he slipped the helmet over his head. What the hell is this? The Outback Club. This club was the club 70 years ago, said Mookie, taking off his helmet. His short hair was sweaty. So what happened? Milton Burrow, he killed it. Well, that makes no sense, said Jones. He set down the helmet and walked through the opening. Television, people got TVs. Jones was not sure which brother was speaking. He peered through the concrete window frame. A rusted white refrigerator was tipped into the collapsed floorboards. Silver beer cans were strewn with broken amber bottles along the outside wall. Through the open window, a second building ran parallel to a few scrub trees. We used to drink up here in high school, said Mookie. Right, said Jones. He stepped around the corner into a thick field of yellow wildflowers and orange tiger lilies. He walked through the flowers and approached the first concrete frame. This building's faded wood floor was swept clean. The opposite wall had broken window frames lined with chipped glass. He and the two brothers entered the dank, shadowed structure. Oh man, World War Three, Mookie! The inside wall next to the window frame was riddled with little rounded holes. 
Bullets, Kooky, bullets! Kooky turned as Jones moved up to the concrete and ran his fingers over the rough contours centered within a two-foot radius. The killer, said Mookie. Maybe. Jones again stuck his fingers on the cold concrete. I was up here last winter. That wall was smooth. Jones retracted his hand. Why would someone bother to come up here to shoot, and at night? Why not just a shooting range? Coach, it's four and a half miles to where the conservation road hits Washington Street, and another couple of miles all the way up to the notch. Jones nodded and pressed his lips. He walked to the window frame, minus the glass, and raised the lower portion. This window is in direct line with the concrete. Maybe somebody planned to plug Nussbaum through the conservatory window. Yeah, and kill him, too said Kooky. Jones glanced at him and inspected under the frame. A blackened area and the wood gathered his attention. He sniffed the wood. Gunpowder. This gun was wedged between the wood and the concrete frame. You gotta check the window at the conservatory, said Kooky. Jones leaned against the concrete. This is getting very bizarre. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 14. Jones trudged through the massive regional medical center's revolving door. Over his shoulder, the Bisbang truck, gate still open, swerved by the smaller trees along the loop road beyond the parking lot. He headed directly to the payphones along the wall near the gift shop. Just outside the crowded lobby, he pushed in Strickland's cell phone number, but as the line rang, Sid Smoltz's long black car passed the Bisbang truck and entered the main parking lot. George. Matthias, where are you? We're still in Prince William. Well, I just got over to the hospital. My car stalled on the notch. Strickland spoke to Wendell in the background about what had happened. Yeah, we're, we're good. We'll get the we'll get thing together. I'm turning around now. We'll pick you up. I couldn't talk to Lenore. First, Picotta's people and then Picotta himself came out. He told me his wife had nothing to do with Noose Bomb's murder. And I would need a court order to question her. I didn't press it. Court order? He'll block that too, George. I have proof that somebody was practicing with a gun for some time before the murder. What? The conservation land beyond the sand pits. The wall in the Outback Club building is all shot up. Recently. So what? Somebody wedged a gun in the window frame. We need to recheck the conservatory. Jones listened as Strickland relayed the new information to Wendell. Then he laughed as Wendell said something. Wendell says it's a long shot. Long shot? Maybe it is. Real funny, Wendell. Real funny. I'm going up to see Lark right now. He gazed out the tinted front windows. And hopefully I won't run into that idiot lawyer of his. I think I'm on to something here, George. Well, we've found kids drinking up there before. They're probably shooting a twenty-two. said Strickland. We'll be at the hospital in 15 minutes. Well, don't give up on Lenoa Picotta. We need to question her about her relationship with Corbett. Easier said than done. Jones hung up the phone and backtracked to the stairs. He formed an image of the conservatory and overlapped it with the Outback Club wall. Nussbaum arrived in the conservatory every morning at the same time. But wedging the gun between a window frame was a far-fetched scenario. As he climbed the stairwell, he thought about some remote activation device or even a string attached to the trigger of the Smith & Wesson described by Strickland. 
He pushed open the third floor doors and walked briskly down to room 339, but Lark's bed was empty when he looked inside. He's down the uh, solarium, said the man with the elevated cast in the next bed. Let somebody else listen to highlights of his coaching career. The big game of 51. Snooky McKenzie, I can't take much more of this. Oh, I fully sympathize, sir. How is he feeling? Well, I'm wondering why he's still in the hospital. Well, I'm wondering that myself. Jones nodded and spotted the cop standing outside the room at the end of the green tile corridor. The cop leaned against the door frame and listened to whatever was going on inside. Jones wandered down the corridor and tapped the cop on the arm. Is Lark Larson in there? Quiet. He's back at the big game of 51. Jones winced as Lark's chatty voice spilled into the corridor. Lark was seated on a small blue sofa and surrounded by a group of patients and a couple of nurses. Well, we were down by 15 points, but that didn't stop us. I called the old razzle-dazzle from the sidelines. Snooky got the snap, and he pitched it to Pudgy Wilson. Pudgy loops back and pitches to Snooky. Meanwhile, Tipper Burtson is out long and deep. Snooky fades back and unloads the long bomb. Tip is under it. He reaches up. Lark looked over to Jones. Matthias. What happened? asked one of the nurses. Yes, Lark, said Jones. Do tell us what happened. Lark squinted and moved his hands around. Well, Tipper grabbed the ball, but he flipped it to one of the opposing players. He ran all the way for a touchdown. We lost by one point. Tipper never got over it. He went crazy later in life. Jones was not entirely sure that Tipper Bergson went crazy later in life. The guy was an investment banker on Wall Street. Lark, uh, I need to talk to you. Well, I can make no comment about the case, according to the wishes of my lawyer. Lark, it's me, Matthias. I have to rely on what counsel tells me. For what? demanded Jones. Lark held his chest. Sir, if you're going to upset Mr. Larson, I will have to ask you to leave. Lark stood and tightened his red plaid bathrobe and motioned Jones from the room. Matthias, I really don't want to get myself in trouble. Then why did you plead guilty, Lark? Strategy. When you pulled up to the conservatory, was anyone in there? I can make no comment upon this case according to the wishes of my lawyer. Jones opened his eyes, glanced at the nurse, and tempered his comments. Lark, someone else shot Newsbaum, and you picked up the gun. I can make no comment. Was the gun on the floor or in the window? Lark leaned over and whispered, On the floor, old boy. And nobody else was in there, inside or outside. I didn't see anybody. I picked up the gun. I don't know why I picked it up, and it fired. Then I panicked and ran out. Was the window closed or open? Asked Jones. Well, I don't know. And you heard the shot. No, sir, I did not hear a shot other than my own. See, I drove so fast to the conservatory, Matthias, and I was so hot under the collar when I stormed in. But as God is my judge, I did not see anyone else in there. Was there anything unusual? Locke's crow's peaks tightened and he pinched his chin. Then he raised his index finger. Well, I was a little constipated that morning, and I... I mean, relating to the murder. 
and my hearing aid feedback drilled my ear when I pulled into the parking lot. I guess I should use better batteries. It affected my driving for the worse. I find that hard to believe. Look, Lark, and I still have the gout. I shouldn't be telling you any of this. What if Sydney comes by? Well, you need to fire that kook right now. Let LG take care of this. Locke furrowed his brow and shook his head. No, I owe Sidney. I owe him. Owe him money? No, my life. He saved my life. He leaned forward toward Jones. See, I was a little tipsy at one of our school reunions, and, well, I fell into the jello. Oh, boy. I don't remember anything, but Sidney and the two woman wrestlers fished me out. Woman wrestlers? Oh, yes, wonderful girls. Luck, Lark, just dump smolts. I'm a man of honor, Matthias. I won't do it. And besides, he's providing his services on the house. Ah, now I get it. Lark, if you weren't so cheap, you wouldn't be in this mess. A penny saved is a penny earned. Stop right there. Stop right there. Sid Smoltz's white suit filled the solarium doorway. I'll throw you in jail, Jones. Jones grit his teeth as Sid approached. Don't threaten me, Smoltz. You and your lame brain tactics faking the heart attack. Where did you get your law degree on the internet? I won't have you talking about Sydney like that, said Lark. The nurse rushed over. Mr. Larson, let's get you back to your room, she grimaced at Jones. And I asked you not to be disruptive. I'd like to take a statement from you, miss. I'm sure the judge won't take kindly to Jones here harassing a man with a heart condition. I would be glad to give you a statement, Mr. Smoltz, said the nurse. Jones inhaled and held his breath. Stay out of my way, Smoltz. You heard that, nurse. He threatened me. Jones threatened me. The nurse escorted Lark to the room down the end of the corridor. Jones sneered at Sid, exhaled, and headed for the stairs. He scurried down the rubberized stair treads, livid and plagued by Lark's misguided loyalty. When he emerged into the well-lit lobby, George Strickland pushed the revolving doors. George, I need you to take me to the conservatory. Back on the cruiser, Matthias, Kevin Phillips and his detectives are down at the river. Jones moved beside him. What happened now? Strickland stopped outside the doors. Steve Corbett's body was found in the river. Jones's stomach wrenched. Shot once in the back of the head. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 15. Coco crossed the slippery wood docks with three of his men. The salty, damp air drifted across the river as he passed the medical examiner's van and stepped up to Jones. Hey, Jonesy, Jonesy, Corbett had a place on Duval Street. Jones turned from the silver-rippled river. Coco, come on, man, wake up. You need coffee or something? No, I just don't know if this man killed Nussbaum. Well, somebody wanted him dead, and like I just said, he rented a place on Duval Street. Well, how do you know that? asked Jones as the van pulled away. Strickland, Kevin Phillips, and Don Pacheco, the Prince William police chief, talked behind the van. One of my friends clued me in. Listen, don't you go down there. Why not? It's a rough place. I don't want Gallagher to be officiating at your funeral mass at St. Bart's. I know people on Duval Street. They can tell me who came and went. The place is a dump. What about Lenore Picotta? Jonesy, that's what I need to talk to you about. 
Picard has put the word out on you. On me? And this investigation. Word is he has Lane and Chance on board, and probably the judges. Why? Hey, man, she must be in this up to her... Unless she was set up by Corbett, said Jones. For what? Her prints weren't on the gun? Just lozenges. You need to stay out of this. Jones shook his head. Somebody wanted Corbett dead. He may have known too much. Or maybe the bride knew he did it and then took him out. I don't know. I have to look for Mick. He was fired from both the symphony and from the school because Nussbaum got him fired. I could see where he'd be torqued off, but Jonesy... Coco pointed at his chest. The little twerp never told me he lost his job with the symphony or at the school. He lied. I don't like being lied to. I'll find him. He knew something. And stay the hell away from Picada. Coco looked to his right as the sandy-haired Kevin Phillips moved along the dock with Pacheco and Strickland. Hey, this is where I came into the movie. Get that cell phone fixed, Jonesy. I'll find Mick. I'm only saying that Mick had the motive. Don't rough him up or anything. Hey, you let me worry about that. He lied to me. Coco pretended to hit him on the shoulder and then retreated with his guys to a white limo parked along the brick warehouse. Jones looked into Phillips's blue eyes as he approached. What do you think, Kevin? Well, the mayor says Lenore is missing. Well, you don't believe that, do you? asked Jones. Pacheco looked concerned. As chief of the Prince William Police Department, he would need to face reporters gathered beyond the warehouse. Coco Stefani is a, uh, a bad influence, Matthias, and a good resource. We want to talk to Mick Dumas. My thoughts exactly, said Jones, as Coco's white limo spun away from the docks, because Nussbaum shot off his mouth and cost Mick his job at the school and the orchestra. Yeah, we know all about that. Jones wondered about Mick. Mick didn't seem too upset about it when I spoke to him. He said he was going back to New Mexico. Is that where he's from? Jones shook his head. No, he lived there after he got out of the service. Well, I want to access his service record. He was in the library on the fifth floor and he has a witness, said Jones. Phillips crossed his arms over his thin blue tie. Well, maybe he hired Corbett to kill Nussbaum. How? I keep coming back to that, gentlemen. How was the maestro killed, and what about Lenore Picotta? We'll handle her, said Pacheco. Where is she, Dom? Is Picotta hiding her, or will she turn up in the river? Pacheco pointed at Jones. Sometimes you push too far. George, he said, turning. Nussbaum was shot from the rear, ten, maybe fifteen feet away. Yet Lark saw nobody go in or out, and there was no place to hide. You guys swept the conservatory. I'm telling you, nobody was in there. Well, there had to be. Then I wouldn't rely on what Lark says. Then you need to look into the bullet holes at the Outback Club. Anybody could have done that. Window kicks kids out of there all the time. Jones stared across the misty river at the tankers, docked near the huge oil storage tanks below the Crosstown Bridge. I want to go inside the conservatory again. How many times are you going to go in there, Matthias? As many times as it takes to find the truth. Jones slowly panned back to the bridge's green girders, arching above the rush hour traffic moving out of the city. There's an answer in there, and I'm going to find it. Funeral March for the Maestro Chapter 16 Strickland's cruiser disappeared around the library, and Jones sat along in Nussbaum's black and gold trim wood chair. The breeze was constant through the open windows above the rim facing the library. 
He turned to the locked windows behind the piano. Waging a gun in those windows made no sense, since Nussbaum was shot from less than 15 feet away and from the rear. But a close visual inspection showed no gunpowder, nor could he smell it. Compounding the window theory was the fact the gun was away from the window. The piano was at ideal range. The newness was still evident in the glossy wood finish, and the fresh lacquer was prevalent in the air. The long scratch tapering on the wide leg must have irritated the maestro. He studied the tightly wound strings in intricate craftsmanship and then faced Nussbaum's chair less than 15 feet away across the floorboards. Placing a gun in back of the piano would fit within the ballistics range. He bent over and sniffed the newness of the piano's rich wood, but he did not sense anything like he smelled at the Outback Club. Hey, you! Jones looked over his shoulder. Mrs. Jefferson stuck her white-permed hair in the window. Mrs. Jefferson, what are you doing here? What are you, getting so hoity-toity you can't return somebody's call? Well, my cell phone. Don't make any excuses to me, Matthias Jones. I did get a message to call Courtney, you're right. Oh, well, what the hell do you think I'm talking about? She asked. My son is a nervous wreck. I tell him he should start dating, but that's another story. He's gotten something in his car, and he wants to talk to you about it. Well, I'm busy here, Mrs. Jefferson. I really am. Oh, Hustung, you get your butt over to the hardware store. Well, where is he? At the store. What are you, going deaf? All right, all right, I'll come around. I have to close the window here. She leaned inside. I may be the only one in town to say this, but I think that cheapskate did it. Courtney? asked Jones with a smile. No, the other cheapskate, Lark Larson. Why do you say that? Because he'd run down his own mother to get back the first buck he ever made. Cheap, cheap, cheap. Even when he dated me. Cheap, cheap, cheap. I'll be right out. Behind the counter, Courtney rang up an order of screws for an elderly man. He looked up and winced when Mrs. Jefferson shouted his name. Courtney! But when he saw Jones, he quickly finished the order, placed the screws in a small paper bag, and handed it to the man. Mother, why did you drag Matthias over here? Because I'm sick of your moping. If you got something to say to Matthias, say it now. He's a busy man. Well, it's private. What can be so private, Courtney? You're just like your father. Getting something out of him was like drawing blood. I'll go out back. She bounced around the counter, glanced at Jones, and then faced Courtney. You're in trouble. I know it. Mother, please. Mrs. Jefferson snarled and retreated to the warehouse. Jones leaned against the counter. Well, I'm sorry I didn't return your call, Courtney. I've had a million different things going on here, and now that Lark has gotten himself into trouble, well, I think it's all my fault. Why is it your fault? asked Jones. It is, and I know I'll be in trouble with the police. Why? The longer I let this go, the worse it gets. I thought I'd just talk to you, and you would talk to George, and now days have gone by, and... Courtney, what happened? Well, I was making a delivery at the English department, Grayson Hall. They needed supplies for cleaning the floors. Come on, you were there? You had a perfect view of that conservatory. I've been trying to tell you. I saw her go into the conservatory. Her? In the argument. I couldn't hear what they were arguing about, but they? She was arguing with a man. I heard a man's voice. Was Lark in there? No. The parking lot was empty. She had to be arguing with the conductor. 
Jones nodded. And just who the hell are you talking about? The mayor's wife. Oh, I don't believe this. Courtney. And I loaded the floor pads and the cleaner boxes on the hand truck, and I recognized her from the pictures in the Enterprise. Jones's heart beat rapidly. So Lark didn't see her. No, Lark wasn't there. I brought the delivery into Grayson Hall. Did you hear the shots? No, I've read the paper, but I was inside the maintenance closet on the second floor. When I got outside, Lark staggered out the doors and fell into his car. Then he drove across the football practice field. They had a soccer goal over there. Well, I saw him hit the goal. What about Lenore Picotta? I don't know, said Courtney, tapping his fingers on the wood counter. Did Lenore Picotta have a gun? Not that I saw. She just walked inside right before nine o'clock. But did you see her leave? No. Did Lark have a gun? Lark had trouble just getting into his car. He doesn't move like he used to. Well, he doesn't do a lot of things like he used to. Court, you have to give a statement to George. You shouldn't have let this sit. I'm in trouble. I know I am. Obstruction of justice. No, no. Nothing's going to happen. If I had answered your calls, we might have saved ourselves a lot of trouble. I'm going to call George right now, and don't worry. Courtney! shouted Mrs. Jefferson from behind one of the aisle bins. Mother, were you listening? Of all the dumbass deals, how can you let them run around with their heads cut off while you saw the murderer? Well, we don't know that, said Jones, holding the phone. Mrs. Jefferson twisted her lips and shook her head. Ah, oh, what a dork. Mother, I wanted Matthias to handle this, and I couldn't get a hold of him. He's right, said Jones, holding the phone. Hamilton, answered Ned at the station. Ned, I need to speak with George. Hey, Matthias, you having that big beach bash tomorrow? Yeah, for the kids who participated in the camp. Look. Oh. Honey Dewis said everyone was invited and you were springing for it. No, I'm not springing for anything. Just get George, Ned. Right, right. Jones faced Courtney. Did she look upset or distressed? I, I couldn't tell. She walked at a leisurely pace and carried a black purse. She wore a jersey with something written on it. Tight slacks. Tight slacks. Oh, yeah, sure. He notices the tight slacks, but he can't tell the cops valuable information, said Mrs. Jefferson. Well, I wasn't sure if her presence there was relevant. Matthias, this is George. Mrs. Jefferson shook her head. Of course it's relevant. I can see your brains didn't come from my side of the family. Matthias, are you there? Courtney Jefferson saw Lenore Picotta enter the conservatory just before nine. What the hell is wrong with him? Well, that's a whole other story, George, but you better talk to him. I'll be right over. Jones still had a side road theory that someone had placed a gun in Nussbaum's new piano. He stepped around the cruiser hood under the streetlight's soft, fleshy glow and stood between its picket fence and the car. Maybe the trigger was cocked and a slight jarring would set it off. Behind the wheel, Strickland leaned toward the open window. You know, Courtney is a pain in the neck. He should have come out with this right away. He was afraid of being punished. Living with Mrs. Jefferson would be punishment enough for any man. Agreed. Jones faced his house. I'm almost willing to pay to have anyone finish this plumbing job. Strickland had a cocky smile. Well, I heard Arnie Dewars does plumbing on the side.
along with auto mechanics, said Jones. Call me if you find Lenore or Mick Dumas, George. Why don't we just ask Courtney, asked, asked Strickland, as the cruiser rolled along the sidewalk. See what else he's withheld. Then he stopped the car and looked back. Who do you think did it, Matthias? Jones flattened his lips. I don't know who did it, but there's more to this than meets the eye. I feel like they were all in cahoots, and I'm not too happy about Picotta protecting Lenore. That's what's got me worried. Jones watched the Red Sox game with his feet propped up on the recliner. He dipped into the stainless steel popcorn dish and stuffed another handful into his mouth. Then he dissolved the popcorn with more soda. Between batters and innings, his mind drifted across campus to the conservatory. He thought back to when he first ran inside and Nussbaum was hunkered over the cello with a dog by his side. Lark had left after firing a shot, but the fatal shot was fired a minute before, but long after Lenore Picotta had left the building. Why had she lied about her whereabouts, and why had she traveled to Hamilton to argue with Nussbaum? The ringing kitchen phone startled him and he flung the popcorn out of the bowl. He set the bowl on the TV table and scurried into the kitchen. After initially fumbling, he placed the phone to his ear. Hello? Matthias, it's George. Picotter is putting extreme pressure on Herbert to pursue this Lark thing. Herbert told me bluntly he didn't think Lenore was involved in this. What are you going to do? Find her. I concur with Kevin Phillips. She may have shot Corbett, or Corbett may have sent her to the conservatory in order to frame her. Well, that's interesting, George. I was just wondering why she'd go over there early in the morning. But that would mean Corbett or Mick killed Nussbaum, and we have no proof of that. He leaned against the counter, even though all three of them were near or in the conservatory. I don't like the way Picotta is running flack for Lenore. What do you expect him to do? asked Jones. I think the gun was propped in the piano and somehow remotely fired by one of these three people. Well, that's a great theory, but how do you fire a gun remotely? Mick and Corbett were both in the service. Strickland cleared his throat. There was nothing different about the gun. It's a new issue by Smith & Wesson. I'm going to call Mick. Good luck. He's not in his house, and Kevin has men watching. Where is he? With Lenore Picotta? One of them killed Corbett. Jones leaned on the counter. Or maybe Picotta ordered Corbett's death. You said it yourself. Herbert is under pressure. I don't doubt anything about Picotta. What's our next move? Asked Jones. Talk to Mick and Lenore. Jones is baffled by the possibility of a wedge gun in the window frame of the Outback building in the conservation area. Steve Corbett does make an appearance, but he's dead, shot dead in Prince William. Then Jones finds out Mick Dumas lost his job at the school and the symphony because of Arnold Nussbaum. Jones is chided by Strickland and others for repeatedly going back to the conservatory. What bothers him is the scratch on the piano leg. The scratch on the piano leg might fit within ballistic range for the gun. And why is Mayor Picotta shielding his wife from questioning? I'm Robert P. Fitman, and we'll get answers to these questions and more in Episode 4 of Just Who Killed Arnold Newsboy. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittinbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz, 
www.pizzazz.com.